Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking part in this immersive listening experience. A meaningful existence is a moving target that no matter how close, will always be out of reach. We hope this message finds you with an outstretched hand. As we attempt to uncover complex truths, remember, life's toughest questions can be answered if we all just focus on one thing. Being good people. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Good People, episode 16. Today, I was joined by Bill Strang. He is the founder and former president and CEO of TSSI. In this episode, we talked about his 41-year career turning a small $500 investment out of his garage into a $100 million company. Today's episode is filled with tons of lessons of leadership, running a business, and being a good person. Before we begin, if you guys are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give the show a rating. It helps us out a ton. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. All right. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, there's a lot of things that I think we'll take out of this, specifically on the side of leadership. I think you have a very um, unique perspective in building people uh getting more from people. And this is something that I do a bit with my job training people in fitness. It's a little bit more physical than maybe the mental side of things. Um, But I'm I'm excited to sort of dig into some strategies and things like that, that you've used and maybe have had in your career that I'll definitely learn something and hopefully people listening uh, will learn something. But to start, would you mind giving us a brief overview of who you are, what it is that you've done with your career and details like that? What's the 30,000 foot view of you? Well, I think that, first of all, uh, I ran a business for approximately 40 years, Uh, started it out of my garage and uh, uh, took it to a a full-time business. Uh, The the business itself was a culmination of a lot of things in my life where I felt that it was time for me to see if I could really lead an organization. Uh, My background was quite different. I... uh, uh, you know, I was not a great student in school. Uh, I joined the military right after high school. I was a vocational student, so I did mechanical work in the military, and uh, uh, I found that I did well working in teams, and I needed that discipline to help me focus on on my future. Uh, but when I came home after four years, uh, I found that I jumped around with a lot of things. I became a machinist and became a journeyman, finished my apprenticeship. I eventually went in for a short period of time into management. I found out that I really, uh, in my early 20s, I wasn't ready for that yet. And I went back into the trade, uh, started uh, going to school for engineering, and along the way took a job move that caused me to move to an area where there was no engineering schools. So I wanted to continue on with my education, so I changed my major to vocational education. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, in the early 80s to get a job teaching in an adult training center in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, I had been an instructor the last few years of my time in the military. So speaking and and teaching really came natural. I really enjoyed it. And I had the best job. I thought I'd never, ever do anything else. Uh, But three years into it, uh, funding cuts in education, uh, seven of us were let go. And uh, along the way, a manufacturing company found me and asked me to come to Virginia and manage their training operation. So, you know, I go from blue collar, turning wrenches, making parts, 
some very detailed work. I was very confident what I did, but I'm now I'm, I'm managing uh, a training operation and I'm bringing in students from manufacturing plants and again, a very good job. Uh, but what I forgot to say was uh, along the way, I missed the military and uh, I ended up joining the reserves after about a year and a half of being away from active duty. And uh, I found that there were other things that I had skills that uh, that they wanted me to do. And I started building survival kits for people in my unit. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout. I had some other skills. So it uh, came natural. And uh, before long, I started getting calls at my home from a variety of different people asking me for different pieces of equipment. So I borrowed $500 worth of house money in 1980. I put together a, a plethora of different items and started offering them to my friends. Uh, camping equipment, survival gear, special boots, things like this. And uh, by 1990, I was getting more calls at my home to do special project work than what uh, the company that was paying me to teach in the training center wasn't paying as much, but it was I was getting more calls. So in June of 90, I resigned my position with a manufacturing company, uh, took the risk and went out and started a small business. Very cool. Uh, could you describe it in a little bit more detail? What it was in? I know you say like these are packs, right? And they kind of varied what you were making and creating for these people. Is that a, a good explanation of what it was. It just kind of depends or, or could you give maybe a brief overview of what one would expect to find in one of these things you made? Sure. At, at that time, starting at the very beginning, it was nothing very sophisticated. It was nothing very special, uh, good quality survival equipment, uh, good quality camping gear, uh, clothing that would be better than what maybe was issued to us in the, in the military. Uh, and my friends in the unit would laugh because every time I came to drill, the back of my truck was loaded with little green boxes full of things. And at lunchtime, I would open up a store, uh, even to this day when we meet and they know what I, my business transitioned to be. They all talk about, I remember when you sold me this flashlight or you sold me this pocket knife or you sold me this or that. So it, at the very beginning, it was pretty conventional and, uh, that was what gave me the foundation to walk away from industry and open an outdoor shop. And that outdoor shop here in Harrisonburg, Virginia, called Sportsman Specialties, uh, we did hunting, camping, backpacking, and mountaineering out of the front. And at the same time, we were supplying a variety of different people within DOD and government agencies out the back with more boots, more flashlights, more first aid kits and so on. Yeah. It's the same thing, just scaled up a bit. When did you make the transition from your garage to this sports store? Uh, June of 90, I resigned. Uh, I moved from the garage and uh, I had considerable amount of inventory when I opened up the outdoor store. And uh, we uh, went into 1,200 square feet. And I had a uh, an employee who was a friend who used to hang out at my garage and one night after a few beers, it said, why don't we look at taking this thing full time? Would you come to work with me? So I started with one employee besides myself and we opened an outdoor shop and eventually he covered the front end and I did the back office business. Okay. Um, what 
was that time period sort of like for you? Um, and I guess kind of how long did that go on? I would, I would guess when I say the first five years of business, I know you were doing this out of your garage for some time, but maybe starting from the point of when you got to the outdoor store and you were doing all of this work out of the back, what did that first five years of business look like for you? I understand it kind of scaled up relatively quickly. It scaled up extremely quickly. We opened about the end of June and the, uh, the situation with Saddam Hussein, uh, taking moving into Kuwait happened that August. Uh, I was already lined up with various people within the special operations community to survive or to provide certain types of pieces of equipment. And uh, so we exploded. Uh, I went in about five months to about six employees. Uh, Some of them were friends. Some would come and stand around in the store too long and we'd put them to work. Uh, other people were working weekends. Uh, my kids were working. Um, we would get stuff in from UPS in the morning and we would get it ready and it would go back out that night. Um, I had relationships with many storage to, uh, uh, when it was a larger quantity of items, we would have to prepackage it and set it till we got the complete order ready to go. But at that time I learned never to say no to the customer. So one of the great stories of TSSI is that uh, one of our first big orders was 500 gallons of Prestone antifreeze. And it was 5 o'clock in the evening. It was in September after the uh, Desert Shield had started. And a customer called and said, can you get me 500 gallons of Prestone antifreeze? And I said, yes, I can. He said, you really can? I said, yes. So he, he said, well, how much? I said, I don't know. Let me check. And I ran to a... Uh, a store in the area called Roses, I walked in and said to the guy, do you have 500 gallons of antifreeze, Prestone antifreeze? And he said, I don't know. I just got a shipment. Let me look. And uh, he came back out and he said, yes, I do. And I said, uh, he said, how much do you want? I said, 500 gallons. And he sort of looked at me like I had a third eye. And and, uh, I said, can I use your phone? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, because it was before I was using cell phones and things like this. So I called the customer and it was less than an hour from the time they called. I said, I've got it. He said, you have 500 gallon of Prestone antifreeze. I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, you really have it. I said, yes. He said, how much? And I had a flat markup rate. So I had to do some basic math because I wasn't real smart and was able to get it done. And uh, he said, great here's the contract number. Now, here's the thing. I need it at Andrews Air Force Base by midnight. Can you do that? And I said, yes, I can. And I called a friend who had a a turkey farm here in the area. We used a a farm use steak bed truck and left Harrisonburg, Virginia for Andrews Air Force Base, and we delivered it by midnight. Um, That was the beginning of proving your performance. And the customer started calling and asking us for everything. So one day we were doing compasses, one day we were doing G, uh, G-Shock watches, uh, the next day we were doing tools and we were doing uh, uh, generators. So it just continued to grow. So during that time of that first Gulf War, that really made a difference in getting the business started off the ground. Many, many businesses fail in the first year and a lot more fail in the first five years. Fortunately for us, the customer base that we had in that first year really helped us. And it wasn't too much longer after the war was over that a customer came and said, would you be willing to go overseas? 
And I said, yes, I would. And I ended up finding myself working for a foreign government and uh, purchasing things here and moving them over there. Again, that was a cornerstone of the strength of the business. I had five or six good, reliable employees back here, and I was coming back each time with orders for us to be able to complete and deliver to the customer. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, it makes me think something that I tell, I'm a fitness coach and I majored in communications in college. I had no background in fitness. It was just something that I was kind of doing as a hobby and through a number of fate and God and luck, I ended up where I am because of what you just said of saying yes to a lot of things. Maybe it wasn't quite the same scale, like delivering 500 gallons of antifreeze to uh, an airport by midnight, right? But there was a, there's a lot of like low level stuff at a gym, like jobs nobody wants to do, and just things of that nature. That if I was asked to do it, I was the guy that was going to say yes. And so I always tell young coaches, don't be picky. If somebody says, "Can you train at 8:30 p.m. at night?" you say yes. If if your your owner asks you to uh, cover the 5:30 a.m. shift after you did that 8:30 p.m. session, you say yes. If you have to mop the floors of the gym, you say yes, because it doesn't matter. You need a you need to sort of build yourself uh, this credibility and reputation as a guy that will do things that other people won't, even if it's simple stuff like that. But um, so you saying that sort of made me think about that. That's a thought that I've been giving uh, or I've been giving a lot of thought to that lately. So uh, that's that's a very, very cool story. Well, thank you. The next question that I would like to ask you is, why is this something that you were passionate about getting into? I know you sort of had your military background, but is there a more specific reason that you've given thought to? Well, that's interesting because I think at the very beginning, uh, never let it be say that it, said that it isn't scary to take that step from security of a Fortune 500 company. And I was mid-management. I was managing the training operation. I was working with production people, and I was working with senior management. But I started to see the handwriting on the wall. I had had other jobs in my career, both blue-collar and teaching, and also now in industry, where I felt like I gave 110%, but I was a number. And when things got slow, I worried about my job. I worried about what was I going to do to feed my family. So what I started to look at was if I went on my own, the only person that I could rely on for my success would be me. And that would only be done by how hard I was willing to work and how much of a commitment I was willing to put into it. So that's really one of the reasons why I took the, the step to go out on my own. Uh, fortunately, I found something I had passion about, and that passion grew to really what one of our, our core focal statements was that our job was to make sure that every warfighter came home at the end of their deployment and that every police officer went home at the end of watch. Uh, I took that very personal and I even get emotional about it today. And when you stand in front of a team, no matter if it's two people or in our case, 75 at the end, and the owner tells you that that's his passion and that's what we're going to do. Uh, to me, that's leadership and not management. Management is, is solving problems that are in the business, but leadership is taking the people and pulling them along with you, sometimes pushing them 
but getting the mission accomplished so that we could go ahead and provide our customers with the best service and the best products we could. Yeah. You're, you're speaking on a lot of cool things there. Um, and I, I'm really excited to just dive into this leadership topic with you because it's something that you know a lot about. Um, but just quickly before we talk into that, when was, I know you're, you've retired from this now. What was that timeline like? How long ago was that? Um, what did retirement look like for you from this business that you built? Well, it, uh, it was 41 years full-time and part-time. The part-time, the first 10 years of part-time and then uh, 31 years full-time. Uh, we, uh, we closed the deal in uh, March of 21. Uh, I officially retired six months later because I stayed for six months as the president and CEO. And then I became a 1099 contractor for another six months. And uh, uh, that was, uh, it was different because it was my baby, no matter how ugly it may have been. Uh, I took a lot of pride in, in what we had built. And I had great employees, uh, could not have done anything that I did without the help of a lot of good people. So it was it was hard for me to walk away from it. And it was hard for me to give it up. Uh, the difference was we had grown to a point that no individual employee or group of employees could have afforded to buy it. It wasn't like owning a convenience store and passing it off. We had grown to the point of 75 employees worldwide, uh, which is not huge. But we also had our revenue had gone to a point that for them to keep up financially, they couldn't have done it. So we had to go outside and look at other other opportunities to sell. And it was time for me to move on. I was I was to the point of uh, pushing 70 years old and uh, it was time for me to go ahead and take a break and become a dad and a grandfather again. Yeah. Um, you've kind of done what I think every business person, no matter what their industry is, hopes to do, right? You turn this small $500 investment into this huge multi-million dollar deal and you're retired. I know you do a lot of stuff in similar lines of work still now, and we'll talk about that too. Um, but if you can nail it down to a few specific characteristics, maybe about business in general or yourself, qualities of yourself as a leader, what were the crucial things that allowed that to happen? The small investment from the garage to this huge thing? Well, I think, I think one thing you have to understand is uh, it was not just an evolutional change. There were two or three times that financially I had to go back out and look for money. I had to put my house on the line again. What I find a lot of times with young entrepreneurs uh, or young people that don't understand how to run a business, they think every dollar you turn goes straight in your pocket. Uh, when you're working a government contracting business like we were, you know, Sometimes you're making five, six, seven percent markup. It's not like you're in a retail business where you're making large markups. You're not selling jewelry at 400 percent markup. So you had to look at were you turning enough volume to keep the revenue flows coming? What other markets were we going to look at exploring to go ahead and generate more revenue? Um, I was challenged one time in my personal life about. You've made $30 million 
uh, in sales this year. Why do you have to push to make 40 next year? Well, the reason is, is you don't know you'll make 30 next year. So if you only shoot for 30 and you hit 25, you went backwards. So you had to shoot for 40 to hope you made 35 and you made five more than you did before. So you can't take it and just say, I'm going to stay in a slow pace. I had to be looking at training my people to look for opportunities, training myself to look for opportunities that kept us growing. And fortunately, we found a model that did that, uh, not without pain, not without sacrifice, but we did that. And that's what gave us the growth model that we had that became of interest to someone else when it came time to sell. Would you say, it seems like there's two things there that I'm picking out. Number one is the business savvy, like understanding profit margin, markup, et cetera. And then there's also the, the thing that's just your personality of like, we've got to grow this thing. Which one of those do you think was more important? Understanding the business side of it or sort of the mindset and personality that you have of trying to grow yourself, trying to grow the business, trying to push it a little bit farther every year? Let me back that up just a little bit and I can tell you real quick what it is. But I always looked at this as once I left the garage and started working with public safety, military, government agencies, I looked at it as my job was to take care of that. My job was I didn't want to go to a situation where I learned that they, they were not around anymore because something happened. I wanted to make sure that it was never my equipment that failed. So I always wanted the best. But when you asked about when, what's the difference there between running the business, uh, the passion of it, I guess, and then how to run the business. And, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, but let me tell you, I didn't know how to run a business. All right. I didn't know the difference between margin and markup when I started. I didn't know what the difference was between uh, basically you start to grow the business and then you start to look at all the other things it takes to keep you profitable. And to be profitable, you have to make these margins. You have to be able to get the right products. But at the same time, you're accelerating cost of overhead. You're accelerating your insurances, your rent, uh, the employee benefit package besides insurances. Uh, what's it cost to keep a truck on the road? I didn't have any idea about that stuff. I learned every bit of that one step at a time. Uh, I use a statement continually, and I told you this when we met. Um, you gain experience every day. But when you say, how do you get experience? A lot of times it's through bad decisions. All right. I was always one that said, don't make that mistake again. We're not going to do that. So I do tell people, how do you get experience? Bad decisions. Uh, if it's a good decision, you sort of brush it off and you don't think about it. But boy, you make a bad decision that cost you money. You'll remember it for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I've thought about that a bit since we talked. And something that you said earlier, too, about you didn't want to be you felt responsible for the equipment that you were giving to these people. And you didn't want to be the reason why something catastrophic could happen. This is something that I feel when somebody comes and works out with me is if somebody comes to me and they tell me they want to lose 50 pounds and they don't lose 50 pounds in 
a year of them paying me a couple hundred bucks a month, like that's my fault. And I should feel horrible about that. And I think that that is something that most people, like a lot of people now, especially young people my age are lacking. I remember growing up, my grandparents, my parents, this was something that they always pushed me to have was pride in the work that I, that I do. And it's, whether it's having your family name on it or just knowing it's coming from you, like I want to make sure that the work that I do, whether it's helping somebody get in shape or creating a product, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. But I want to be proud of that because that in some way has my mark on it. And so it sounds a lot like that is another one of those fundamental elements that uh, you're sort of hinting at of that feeling of wanting to be proud of the work seems like it was one of the reasons that it, it, it helped you learn these things along the way because that frustration and feeling of anger when you mess something up and make a bad decision is the feeling that made you push to learn those things so you didn't make those mistakes again. Exactly. I mean, you're striving every day to be successful or else you shouldn't even look at going into business. All right. But but the point is you want to make sure what you do brings value to the people you work with, and the people you work for. Uh so, you know, you have to project that image that it's important to you to, one, support the mission they have, and two, it's important to you that they do it safely. I mean, everything I did supported some type of dangerous environment that people are going into harm's way, wearing the equipment, using the equipment that we supplied, or the medical equipment, some of the other things we expanded into to be able to uh, uh, basically provide care to them should someone get hurt. And we wanted to make sure that everything we did each time was focused on that. So I guess there were times I was on soapboxes in front of my team and we had monthly staff meetings and they would always have a closing section where it was bills time. And during the staff meeting, each of the department heads would have to report out. Later on, the department heads pushed it down a little further, and key people in those departments presented their department information. But it always ended with my time. And I always felt I can't walk out of here unless I keep them pumped up. You know, it's that locker room speech. Uh, And they knew that what we were doing was important to me and that they understood uh, why we did it. That was what was critical. And we had core values for the company. And they knew that if they violated the core values, it was not going to be accepted as an easy road. Uh, I have a company. Every day you represent my name. I want you to make sure that you do that with honor and integrity. Why are core values so important? We have core values at the gym that I work at. I mean, it's the foundation. I, I have this phrase where I say core values to a business is the same thing as uh, ethics and morals to a, a human being. Like the decisions that we make as a business, if they're not in line with these values that we say we hold true, then what are we even doing? Why, in your opinion, are core values so important to the success of a business? Let's go back to say that if the leadership doesn't have strong core values on across the board, not just the growth of the company, then then how can you trust them? All right. Um, 
I didn't want to be a dad to everybody in my business, but I wanted to be an example for them to follow if they didn't have good values at home. And also they knew that I believed in that, so they didn't want to disappoint me. Our core values were easy because they were my core values from the beginning, and it's integrity, reliability, excellence, and teamwork. Only four things. So everything you do affects our integrity. All right? We can't let that down. If somebody thinks we're, we don't have integrity, they're not going to believe what we tell them. Reliability, do what we say we're going to do. If I tell you I'm going to be there at 8 o'clock, show up at 10 till. Okay? Reliability, excellence. Only sell them something that you would go to war with yourself. Don't sell it just because of the dollar points. There were many, many things that I could have made more profit on that had lesser quality. But I wanted to sell the best because I wanted to make sure that it was myself, my son, my grandson, my granddaughter, whatever. If they had to wear it, I wanted it to be the best for them or they had to use it. And then teamwork, we can't get it done alone. We have to be a team to each other in the company, a team to our customers, and a team to our suppliers. So, And that was the way we looked at things. Pretty simple. How did you choose those core values? I think along the way, you know, we did like everybody else. We went out and got a consultant and we paid money for somebody to come in and tell us how to put together core values and a mission statement, a vision statement. And I have to be honest with you, after a while, two or three meetings, they were taking us down a path that I didn't really feel comfortable with. And I sat down with a small group and I said, you know, let's just talk about if you were dealing with me as you have, what do you see in me that keeps you here at work every day? Why do you want to come to work besides the money? So I can trust you. You can trust me. What does that mean? And we broke it down and we broke it down into those four areas. And we said, you know, how do we get things done around here through teamwork? So let's elaborate on that. How do we want to be seen? We want to be seen as, as people who do the best job we can every day. So how do we do that? It's through excellence. We want to push for excellence, strive for it. So that was it. And, you know, like I said, integrity, reliability, excellence and teamwork. You don't need a three and a half paragraph mission statement. You know, it just needs to be simple, you know, and then we went to a mission statement and a vision and we posted these everywhere. And when new employees came on board, they had an in-doc program they had to go through and they had two classes with me. One was on the history of the company. All right. And then the other one was the corporate capabilities. Because I wanted to tell them what we tell the customer. All right. I wanted them to hear it from me that this is what we're telling the customer you can do if you come to work here and this is how you're going to do it. So they had that, you know, they had classes. And, and to be honest with you, uh, it was well received because they liked the idea that, you know, geez, the president of the company. I never saw myself as the president of the company. I didn't like to be called sir. OK. Uh, and I always believed that if I walked through the warehouse and there was a trash can that needed emptied, it's not beneath me to empty it. If the floor needs swept, it's not beneath me to go grab a broom. But I can guarantee I'll find out why I had to. 
All right. Somebody's going to get a talking to after I swept it up. All right. Because I wanted them to see that I could do what I expected them to do. On the other hand, don't make me do it again. So that's just, you know, and again, I think that's part of leadership. Show them that you're not going to expect them to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. It seems like that's almost like a maintenance of the core values, making sure that things are being enforced. I know you talked sort of about these classes and doing these jobs yourselves, but there are, are there any other ways that you maintain the core values in your company? Well, I think, I think it's an ongoing thing that you have to, you can't let it slide. You know, you, if it becomes just words and not culture, then it really doesn't mean anything. So as I would tell my people that got into my supervisory chain and whether they were floor supervisors or they were executives, understand one thing. The further up you go on the management pyramid, there's less places to hide. They watch everything we do. If they see you leaving early, they think they can leave early. All right. If they see you doing something that isn't ethical, they think that that's acceptable for them. So lead by example. You know, do the things that is. I had a philosophy that if there was something in the warehouse that I wanted, I could have taken anything. It was my company. I would tell them, write me up an order. Now, we all got discounts, and I took the same discount as an employee. And I would just say to them, you know, order me this, this, and this. My bill would come in. I'd go down and I'd pay finance for my stuff. And then out to my truck it went. But if I walked out the door with one thing and they saw me, they'd think it was okay for them to take something. At least that was just my philosophy. Yeah, that's very cool. So you are you are the example to follow. Good, bad, or different. So it puts more pressure on you to make sure that you walk that tightrope. That's the challenge, right? Where, you know, I, I'm, I get fired up to read this weightlifting textbook. And then after three days straight of reading a, a weightlifting textbook for an hour, I start to go, man, I'm kind of getting bored of this thing, right? And it's like the discipline of it is doing it over the 41-year career, right? Every single day showing up and leading by example and continuing to do it because uh, it seems like it's a slippery slope, right? Just because you have it this year doesn't mean that you're going to be able to maintain it the next. No, you don't. I mean, we had good years and bad years. We had years we made our budget. We had years we didn't. Um, I think another thing that I'll mention, and I don't, I don't know where this fits, but I always looked at, um, I took a nominal salary for my position because my end state in my mind was when it's all done and I sell. A lot of young leaders get into this and they get trapped in this. I've got to take as much money out of my business as I can because it's my business. Well, it isn't that way because if your business isn't profitable, you have no business. So sometimes you just can't own the Maserati. All right. And you have to look at buying something that's in your price range. And, uh, you know, it's interesting towards the very end of my career, I bought a very nice pickup truck and, uh, you know, the employees came and talked to me and the answer was, it's good to see you have that. You deserve it. 
Well, uh, is there, yeah, you do. Because for many, many years, you drove the company vehicle. And now you have something that is what it's your it's your style. It's what you want to do. So I, I, I treated that as a very nice compliment from those people who said that. Uh, some people feel that they got to take as much out of it as they can. I just didn't run my business that way. Again, I was looking at what the end state was when I sold. That's that's a cool story. And, you know, that's a you're a guy that just didn't let the things that you were doing change fundamentally who you were. You had a vision, you had a process and you wanted to sort of stay true to that. Do you know who Matthew McConaughey is? I'm sure you do. OK, he, he wrote a book. I've quoted it a couple times on this, but there's one chapter it just reminded me of of. I don't know. He got a bunch of movie deals and all of a sudden he was making a whole bunch of money and he moved to California and he comes into work. And one of the people who he was working with was like, did you, uh, did you iron your shirt? And he was like, yeah, I ironed my shirt. He was like, I hired this lady and she irons my shirts. And all she said back to him was like, Oh, I've never noticed you iron your shirts before or something like that. And then he writes this whole chapter of him saying, this was like a big moment of reflection for him of like, why did all of a sudden now that I'm successful, I start ironing my shirts or something along those lines. And it was, it's just like a creative way. And, and that's what the whole chapter was kind of about was him saying, only do things that you want to do. But sort of to your point, it was don't let the success of money or wherever you think you might be or whatever you think you might deserve deter you from the guy who drives the company vehicle and sweeps the floor because it has to be swept. Right. You know, it, it, uh, everything is reflected in the end state success. And many people can get there many different ways. It just happened to be the path I took that said, this is the way I'm going to manage. This is the way I'm going to lead my people. Uh, and this is the way I'm going to feel about, uh, you know, we talked about being a family. A lot of companies talk about it. Uh, but when an employee has a crisis, the company business is not where the importance is that day. It's taking care of that employee. And I mean, I went through numerous deaths in families, numerous situations where kids were sick. Uh, members of the team got sick. Uh, that was an important day for all of us to take care of that individual as it was to get our jobs done. So, you know, some companies, it's just, well, they don't look at the individual as much. We just happen to say, if we're really going to be a family, then we have to approach every situation like a family. On the other hand, if an employee is not living up to our family standards, we had to make sure that they were aware of it. And then if that didn't work out and they didn't understand then you recycle them back to the economy, you know, and they're looking for another job. So, uh, you know, it's just, just the way you have to look at things. Yeah. Um, when we met for coffee, something that you said is we don't hire people to fire them. We hire them to grow them. It was something along those lines. I think that's, that's what you said. What did you mean by that? Well, first of all, what we did when I started the business, um, where we were located in Virginia was not a big uh, market for prior military people. So I was one of the few people that even in the area that knew some of these things when I was helping police departments or I was helping some other agencies. 
So when I hired people, I hired them because of the character of the individual. I always felt that if you can fit, I can train you to do the job. If that person's willing to want to learn, then I can get them to do what we need to do. So we always had some type of training. And being, as I said earlier, a trainer in my background, I wrote training programs for different parts of the company. And I wanted people to follow those standards because we needed to be able to get them to understand how to do that particular job that was going to help us to be more successful in supporting the customer base. So that was one of the things that we always said was, you know, if you have to look at the individual during the hiring process, you didn't hire them to fire them. You hired them to train them, to get them to do the job you want. The more you put into them, the more worth they bring. And when they leave, if you don't keep them, all that time, all that effort, and the time that they spent there working is wasted. So you need to find ways of keeping them. Now, as we grew, the percentage of people we lost became greater just because of the type of people we hired and the type of situations. Some people didn't like the type of work they thought they were going to get into. Some people didn't fit. But we always looked at how were we going to train them to do their job. And, you know, my philosophy was I wanted to train every one of my leaders to take my job. If they could learn to take my job or a part of it, I could focus more time on something that's going to grow the business. And I learned years ago a philosophy that was my job was to be working on the business, not in the business. So working on it to grow it, not in it to answer the phone. I had friends come to visit us who knew me for years, wanted to buy things that I sold them 10, 20 years ago. And the first thing I would say is, hold on. Let me get Corey in here. Let me get Casey in here. Let these young people sit down with you. And the reason is I'm off doing something else now. I'll goof up your order. I couldn't put the orders in the new computer system. All right. Never wanted to learn it. Why? Because I was looking at what was going to be the forward thing that we were going to do that that computer system was capable for us to grow. And uh, I didn't have to know how to put an order in the system. Uh, I knew I'd screw it up. So get somebody in here that's a professional. Let him take your order and make sure the customer's happy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, what you're saying, there's a guy named Dan Martell. He wrote a book called Buy Back Your Time. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's along with what you're saying. Of If a, a lot of young entrepreneurs get scared to hire people, but the reason why you hire people, obviously we're spending more money, but you're giving them the lower value jobs so you can do the higher value jobs. And so growing a business in reality is really just about getting to a point where you have too much stuff and then hiring somebody to do the low level stuff and then doing more high level stuff and then just repeating that over and over and over again until you build a super successful company or, you know, whatever you're trying to turn the thing into. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen some young entrepreneurs firsthand that are extremely intelligent and, you know, MBAs and so on, but they can't let go. They need an, they need a number two. They need a chief operating officer or they need an executive officer in the military. The CO of the unit doesn't run the day-to-day unit. 
the executive officer, the operations officer, the company commanders, they're, they're running day to day. And the same organizations are breaking down below them. If you're trying to do it in corporations where millions and millions of dollars are being spent and you're trying to do it all yourself, something's going to be missing. So, you know, get people that you can rely on to take certain segments of the business away from you so you can look at the big picture. It took me many years to learn how to do that. All right. Because I was a hands on guy. I wanted to be in every part of it. But it wasn't until I started to learn that if I could let these people just do the job and know they do it right, I could go look for new work. I could go look for new processes that we could do and so on. So never consider yourself a one person band. All right. To me, my employees, my advisors, my customers and my suppliers all grew me into the type of person that I was to lead my company. It wasn't the fact that I was just that smart that it all came together. Why is, and we just talked, I know we're talking about the business side, but my question here is why is it important to you to grow and train others? And again, I don't even mean because it makes the business more successful, but is there something sort of in it for you that you get some value out of when you, when you help others grow? hundred percent. You know, I'm a trainer at heart, you know, a uh, trainer in the military, vocational school teacher, corporate trainer, facilitator. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm looking at in, in retirement is how can I help young entrepreneurs, particularly veteran entrepreneurs, be able to grow their business better, but not just grow their business, improve themselves. You know, you, you get out of the service in uh, – whether uh, you're enlisted or officer, you've got a lot of experiences. But to be honest, there's a lot of things you don't know, both about where you're going with business and about yourself in business. All right. Business is a different kind of fight than the battlefield, but never think any day that it's not a fight. It's a fight to survive in business every day. So if they can hear from someone like me, some of the things that helped me, and some of those things that gave me experience, things that you shouldn't do, uh, I think I could bring some value to that. So I've been talking to some local people about where can I fit in uh, to be able to possibly help in this kind of a role. Yeah, you mean currently that's what you're doing? Well, it's currently where I'm headed. Yeah, it's one of the things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Expand on it. I know there's there's this passionate thing inside you that in a project that you're currently working on. What are some details on that? Um, well, I'm looking at the idea of a, a veteran entrepreneur boot camp. And um, people getting out of the service have great ideas uh, and they have great opportunities that they can uh, pull back on their experiences and maybe come up with a new product or come up with something that solves a problem that they had when they were downrange or somewhere else. Uh, the difference is how do they get there? And how do they survive there? So many of them I've met are job jumpers. They have the first five years around the military, five or six jobs, and they're still not reaching the end state that they thought they would get to. So can we sit down and look at that? And I said one of the things I mentioned in my last statement to you about uh, not being a one person or a one man band, having the right advisors having the right people behind you 
that can give you um, opportunities to look at different ways things can be seen. Because if all you're looking at it is this way, because I know it's right and I'm going to do it, they've got experience like this that's this wide. Maybe they can bring some of that to bear to take some of the pain out of what you're doing and help you to grow. So that's that's kind of thing I'm thinking about. Almost like mentors need mentor or leaders need mentors too. Hundred percent. I had five. Yeah. Okay. And um, you know, I had a board. And uh, my board was uh, at one time I had three flag officers. At the very beginning, I never thought that I would have a, a general officer, an admiral on a board supporting me. But eventually my business progressed to that. I had two very successful business people on my board. I also had a very successful uh, accountant on my board. They gave me challenges to look at other opportunities, other ways to improve the business. There were always more things suggested than I could accomplish. There were also times I walked out of there that I didn't feel like I had any material left in the back of my pants because they chewed me so hard on things that I wasn't doing right yet. But it was tough love. It was things that they were doing for me to be able to explain to me through their experiences, I wasn't going to get it right unless I tried to make some changes in my company. So that kind of a that kind of situation. So, you know, I still stay in touch with my board. They're friends now. And that's why my payback thing to them is to look where I can take my experiences and pass it on to somebody else. That's a cool perspective because challenging, being challenged is hard. And I think sometimes people have a hard time receiving feedback because it can be tough to hear. People take it personally and it's hard to manage, but that's a skill, learning how to hear other people out and taking in a different perspective and being like, you know what, this person's probably onto something and I should try it out or, um, you know, try to put in place some of the things that, that, they are telling me and are an expert on. And this is very in line with what you were just talking about. If you can't do all of the jobs. And so having somebody who knows about money or, um, you, you know, holding inventory, using other people as a resource to teach you how to do these things is a very valuable strategy and tool. I think a lot of not just business owners, people in general could, could benefit a lot from. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I was thinking while you were, while you were, uh, giving me the feedback, uh, one of the things I think that occurs uh, with generational differences, as I said earlier, all right, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s and early 70s. Some of the best advice I ever got was when a, an older person would tell me to pull my head out of my posterior. Uh, you know, and I learned from that. Uh, today, oh, you can't say that to anyone. You know, they get they get upset. Oh, he talked to me wrong. Well, in my generation, I learned that later on they did that because they cared about me. They weren't picking on me. It was just their approach to the way they did it. So when I would pull an employee in, depending on the generation of that employee, I had to have five or six different ways of approaching a problem. 
older employees would accept the problem. They would give their viewpoint and we'd work something out. The younger employees I got right away, they were never wrong. They didn't, they didn't want to accept responsibility for the errors that they made or it was our fault because we didn't teach them right. So, you know, those kind of things went on. So you have to learn how to deal with people all the way through business. And I can't do what they used to do to me, but I have to find ways of still achieving the objective and coaching that person to improve so that we can make sure that they're on board with what our objectives are. Bill, as we're getting close to the end of this thing, uh, something that we've asked everybody on this podcast is what does it mean to them to be a good person? My question for you is what does it mean to be a, a great leader or a good leader? And talking to you, I imagine there's probably a lot of things that intertwine between being a good person and being a good leader. But if you could sum it up to a few things, what does it mean uh, to you to be a good leader? Well, that's that's really that's so wide open. I'd have to let me let me just give you a few uh, steps to that. First of all, uh, I'm a Christian and I'm not afraid to admit that. And I try to live my life to help other people. So if I can do that in a proper way of coaching, a proper way of showing them that I can help them along, that's good feedback for me to be a leader. Does that mean I'm perfect? Far from it. You know, uh, as I go through life, uh, what does it mean to be a good person is you live every day for the betterment of yourself, the betterment of your family, and the betterment of those around you. If you can remember that in everything that you do, that you're trying to look out for the people you care about, the people in your community, you're doing well. And it's tough in this day in this world to be able to stay on that focus. And that's where every once in a while I have to go back and remember I'm a Christian before I say something. And uh, uh, because, you know, I started out as a sailor and sometimes I can't forget that. So, you know, it is it is different, uh, but I like doing good things for people. Uh, I'm volunteering now. One day a week, I unload trucks at a food bank. All right. Some great people and uh, all different diverse backgrounds. Uh, I'm the Helping Hands chairman for my Vietnam veterans uh, chapter here in the area. And uh, I coordinate the service projects. If somebody needs a handicap ramp, or something painted on their house, I go out and do the job site assessment. I put together the teams and then we go out and accomplish that. So finding ways of giving back uh, to me makes me feel that that's, that's all part of being a good person. Very good. Is there anything else that you would like to add for the leader, business owner, entrepreneur out there that's listening? That's another wide open question. Uh, I think the thing is, have the passion for what you're going into. Uh, a word to the wise, make sure your life partner understands your passion uh, and understands the mission of your business. If your business is selling software, they need to know how much time it's going to take to sell software, how many days on the road are you going to have to be, because you need to make sure that your life partner is supportive. And the objective, hopefully, is the betterment of your family. And if your partner doesn't support that, it makes it awful difficult to be successful on on uh, both sides of that. It's hard to fight a two-front war. 
Um, so uh, I hope that helps. I think that's very, very good advice. And listen, thank you very much for doing this. I'm super grateful that you and I could have this conversation. I know I took a lot from it. I think people listening will take a lot from it. I think this is probably one of the better episodes that we've done. Uh, you are a pool of knowledge and experience and wisdom that uh, it's it was cool to be able to uh, reach into that, get a little glimpse of the things that you've learned along the way. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity. I have to tell you that this was not something I expected when you reached out to me. Uh, so it was not uh, something uh, easy to uh, approach all this, but you made it really easy to come across, and I hope I did well. You did great. Thank you for saying that. That makes me feel pretty good, uh, and good job stepping outside of your comfort zone and doing something like this. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Good People. Before you leave us, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving the show a rating. And if you really enjoyed it, share this episode with somebody that you love, perhaps your grandma. We'll see you next time.